All right, we're going to spend some time opening up the scriptures now. We do this every week. This is kind of a central part of our gathering as we open the Bible to study it and to learn from it. Uh, we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. And so week after week, we go to the scripture and uh, seek to learn, seek to be those who understand his word. And so this week, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some under the chairs if you're here in person. Um, if you're at home and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give one to you. You can contact the office and we can send one to you as well. Um, also, before I get going with our text, I want to say thank you for everybody that donated blood and for the volunteers that helped us to set up our temporary blood donation center here. We've got a thank you card from the team from Carter Blood Care, but I want to verbalize that and just say thank you so much. Um, that is a very beautiful way to point the world to what Jesus is like as we give ourselves for others. So as we're moving through Matthew, we're in this season that we call Advent. And Advent literally means the arrival of a notable person or event. So what we're saying as Christians, when we slow down in December to think about everything that Jesus brought to us 2,000 years ago, what we're doing is we're focusing on him and the advent of the most important person in history. And as we do that, we as a church like to focus on four themes. And so we've been focusing on hope, love, this week, joy, next week, peace, and then after that, we'll have our Christmas Eve service together uh, outside. And we keep saying uh, candlelight service. I'm thinking the technology won't work with the wind and the candles. I don't know. We're, we're, we're not sure if that's actually going to work, but we'll have some Christmas lights and some Christmas carols, so it'll be awesome. Um, so this week, we're on joy. So the focus is joy, and I want you to think about, before we read the text, think about our posture towards joy. I think joy is something we all want, Right? Um, joy is basically happiness, but as Christy said when she was reading the story, there's a sense we have as believers that we can be internally joyful even as we have sad circumstances, and that's part of the paradox of being people of faith. We can rejoice even as we sometimes cry through difficult circumstances, um, but in general, we all long for that kind of deep joy and external joy, external celebration and happiness. And the holidays really brings this into focus, right? Sometimes in the holiday time, we have this elevated expectation, right? We see the commercialization, we see advertisements, we see all these messages that are saying if we had just the right family or just the right stuff or products or whatever, then we'd be joyful like the people in the commercials. That's something that is broadcast to us regularly. Often, we miss the people that we love at holiday time, or sometimes we have bad memories from holidays, um, but there's often this disconnect from the joy we desire and maybe the lack of joy we're experiencing. Our worship pastor, Chris Webster, was, was laughing about this last week. They go all out for Christmas. They were having a great time. They bought a beautiful live tree. They put it in water. They decorated it, and then they realized the tree's kind of dry. The leaves are dying. There's something wrong. The water is not coming into the tree. So he had to disassemble the whole thing, recut the bottom of the tree, reassemble it, put it back into water. And I thought, you know what? That's a pretty good picture of our posture towards joy. We want the celebration. We want the joy. We want the fun. And sometimes our leaves are dead and dry, right? Speaking metaphorically. Sometimes there's this pain and brokenness and we feel like we have to disassemble our whole life and take it all apart and put it all back together. Well, the scriptures continually call us towards joy, but it's not just a demand for us to be joyful. It's also a solution that's provided in God himself. 
we'll see that in the text today as we read from Matthew chapter 2. So today is the Magi story. Christy read it for us already. We'll hit it again. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east, or Magi from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. This is where the plot thickens. We'll finish that part of the story next week, but I want to pause and pray and ask God to help us to meet us here. We believe that God speaks to us through his word, but we also believe that we have a natural resistance to listening. So we're going to pray and ask the spirit to meet us, open our ears, our hearts, make us sensitive to him. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you are good to us. We see that in the cross. We see that in your creation, Uh, but we also confess, Lord, a resistance to you. We confess because of this broken world we live in. We confess because there is real evil out there, but we also confess because of our own flesh, our own sinful hearts, we resist you. Will you open our hearts? Will will your spirit meet us, Father? Help us to hear, help us to listen, help us to be open-minded. God, help us to set aside our our cynicism for a minute, um, to be open to who you are and what you have to say to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So again, the theme is joy. And joy, as I said at the beginning, is both a command as followers of Christ, as those who believe in God, we're actually commanded to rejoice in him, but it's also something that God provides. And I think that will unfold itself as we move through the story and the text here. There are three things that we see about joy as we move through the elements of the story. And the first thing that we're going to see is that joy is for all kinds of people. We see that with these foreigners coming to worship the Israelite king. Joy is for all kinds of people. The second thing we're going to see is that joy is a fight. Herod is sneaky. He's a bad guy. Uh, the first audience, when they hear Herod the king, they immediately think Darth Vader, right? But like It's an obvious bad guy. Everybody knows he's a bad guy. Nobody liked him. When he comes on the scene, we know he's sneaking around trying to kill this new competitor for the throne. Joy is a fight. The third thing we're going to see is that joy is gift-giving. Joy is gift-giving. We symbolize that at Christmas time with presents wrapped up. 
But really, the New Testament talks more about gifts as kind of our whole life, our skills, our time, our resources in generalities. And so joy is gift-giving. Joy is gift-giving. So joy is for all kinds of people. Joy is a fight, and joy is gift-giving. The first thing we'll see is that joy is for all kinds of people. Um, We see this because outsiders are coming to worship Jesus, and these are outsiders from probably Persia, maybe Babylon. Magi was a common term for kind of this weird combination of both religious priestly types that were into things like astrology and weird things that we would not approve of as believers, but they were also into science and observation. And so we have to kind of put our mindset back in the first century. The Magi were wise men, and they were very well-educated men. And so in our world, we separate religious stuff from science. That's just how we do things in our world. In their world, it was completely combined, and that's who the Magi or the wise men would have been. Interestingly enough, we were studying Daniel, and Daniel was among those wise men in Babylon and then in Persia. He was a leader among them. So we're a little confused here. We're not so sure how much these are complete pagans that God reached out and grabbed hold of, and how much these pagan wise men, Magi, we have the word magic that comes from that, right? How much these guys that were maybe into weird stuff also had some of the scrolls maybe that Daniel passed on to them because Daniel trained them. How much was that left over in this time period? How much did they actually have the prophecies in the word of God? There seems to be some interplay between both. Either way, right, whichever extreme you go to, they were really holy men trained by Daniel or they were really pagan men that God was interceding and grabbing. Either way, it's an example of God grabbing hold of outsiders, It's this picture of something we see again and again in the Bible that God's joy is for all kinds of people. That God is constantly calling the nations to himself. God works through this one tribe of Abraham to save the whole world. And we've got to recognize that. Old Testament seems to focus on the one tribeness of Israel, right? New Testament focuses more on for all people. But it's always been both. It's always been God working through this one tribe to reach all the tribes And God clarifies in Deuteronomy 7, he says, I chose you, tribe, not because you were an awesome tribe. I chose you, Israel, because you were puny, so that my grace could be seen through you. Isn't that a beautiful promise? That's encouraging to me, because frankly, I'm puny. And I need a God who can overcome my puniness to love those around me and serve others and give me strength that I don't have. Paul describes this as jars of clay in 2 Corinthians or earthen vessels, depending on your translation. Basically, what Paul says is, we, the people of God, we have the treasure of God in these cracked clay pots. And God does that on purpose so that we can point at him and say, no, it's God, it's not me. I'm broken, I'm messed up, but God is good. And God works through broken people like you and like me as he calls to all kinds of people to come to himself. Let's look at the text again. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of bad guy, Herod, Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, magus, we get the word magic from that, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. So they know there's a king of the Jews and they've been watching the stars. That kind of shows you the summary of what I was saying. There's some kind of tension of, they know something about prophecies of a Jewish king, and they've been watching the stars. So there's some, they're somewhere in the spectrum between uh, creepy pagan astrologers and lovers of the Word of God, right? And what we have to see here is it's not about how great they were or about how devoted they were to God. God is always calling out to people that don't deserve 
his love. That's what God does. Does that make sense? Now, I just want to clarify, they were watching the stars, and in the ancient world, there was a lot of what we would call astrology that the Bible forbids. And so I just want to kind of give you two categories for that. Astronomy good, astrology bad. Okay? Is that helpful? And for those of you that are into astrology, I'm not picking on you. We love you. We're glad you're here. The Bible forbids it. Doesn't mean you're terrible and we want to run you out of town. We were just, we're just going to lovingly say that's not the place to find truth. What the Bible says is astronomy, looking at the stars, thinking they're awesome, that's helpful in a Romans 1 sense or a Psalm 19 sense where we look at the heavens and say, man, this is awesome. God made this. That's how we are to look at creation. There's a different thing in astrology. It's sometimes called in the Old Testament divination. And what that means is I'm going to reject God's word and his prophets, and I'm going to go to nature and do magic or spells or rituals to try to determine how God is working in the world. And that's called divination or, with the stars, astrology. Does that make sense? Do you see the difference? One is saying, I reject God's word, and I'm going to go try to find secret messages from the stars. The other is just saying, the stars are beautiful. God made them. So here's another distinction that might be helpful for you. Theologians have historically said that there is general revelation. God reveals himself generally as the creator God. Again, key text for this is Romans chapter 1 and Psalm 19. And then there's special revelation. God speaks to us through people and prophets. We have bound this together, and we call it the Holy Scriptures or the Bible. This is the binding together, the recording of God's special prophets. Calvin was a Reformation guy, and he said it's like this. We can see God's presence in creation. We look at creation. Romans 1 says we see God's good. God's there. He made all this. That's just built into every human being. And then special revelation is like putting on glasses. Then we can read more clearly what special or what general revelation is telling us, right? So the Bible helps us to read what we see in the world. So again, astronomy, studying stars, that's great. That's fine. That's good. Astrology, not a good idea because what we're doing with astrology is we're skipping over the Word of God and trying to divine messages from God there. Leviticus condemns this, Leviticus, Leviticus 19.26, don't practice divination or seek omens. It's condemned. And then the prophets condemn it as well. Isaiah 47.13 and Jeremiah 8.2, two places where the prophets say, yeah, don't, don't do that. Don't mess around with that. Go to God's Word. Don't go to astrology or to these omens or to this kind of divination. Again, this is not to condemn people. It's just say, hey, that's, that's not the right way to go get messages from God. This is where we hear from God. Now, how do we handle this then with these guys that seem to be going to the wrong place to find truth and God speaks to them anyway? Guys, that's, that's the history of all people. We're all looking for God in the wrong place and he breaks in and says, hey, here I am in Jesus. Here I am speaking to you through my word. All of us have a life that's turned from God and he interrupts that rebellion and comes to us in love and forgiveness. Do you see that? That's why it's so horrible when Christians or people that call themselves Christians gather together and say, hey, what makes us Christians is we're better than all you bad people out there. That's one of the most broken and terrible things that takes place in so-called Christian communities. We base our faith on us instead of Jesus. Does that make sense? Here in this story and all throughout the Bible, we have a God saying, yeah, all people have fallen short of my glory, yet I'm going to save them anyway through what I've done for them in Jesus. And this is one more example of that. 
these rulers who live in the wrong place and study the wrong texts, and God calls them to himself. Now, another thing to address here, and then we'll move on. We're taking a little too long on the first point, but one more thing to address. God could have used natural stars, right? Natural processes, or God could have used a glowing light in the sky that he supernaturally intervened with. Are you following me? And we're not sure. The Bible doesn't tell us which one it is. Star just means glowing light in the sky. We're not sure if God was like, here it is, giant flashlight supernaturally leading them, right? Or if it was some movement of planets and stars that God used, because they were already watching them, to direct them there. Uh, elder at Temple Bible Church, where I came from, has done a whole study on it. He's, he's laid out some really convincing arguments that it was actually natural processes. But he would say the same thing that I just said. We're not sure. Yeah, it could have just been God saying, no, follow me. Here's a bright light. Either way, God is leading people. You see that? We have the ancient picture. Of, this is, I looked up the name. This is Leopold Kupelweiser. Anybody know Leopold Kupelweiser? Old friend? He painted this in 1825. This is the wise man following a star. Another thing, we're not sure if it was really three. There were three gifts, and so tradition has kind of evolved around that, that it was three wise men. They've, got, they've been given names and all this stuff. We're not really sure from the text, right? text just tells us they're wise men. They give three gifts. They're watching the stars. And so this elder at Temple Bible Church, he's got a great study on it. If you're interested, and I could give you the link for it. It's online and stuff. It's, it's really fascinating. There was a conjunction of Jupiter, which is this, the brightest light in the sky, and it was conjoined and crossing over Regulus, the king star that's in the lion. You know, so there's all this symbolism, if you're going to watch for these symbols from God, that was there. And so it's really fascinating to think about that. But what's the big idea? Either way, whether it was God miraculously saying, I'm leading you like he did Israel with the pillar of cloud uh, and a pillar of fire, or if it was a star and a planet movement, either way, God was involved. God was directing them. God was calling all men, all kinds of people, to find joy in Him. So, if God is going to invite all people to find their joy in Him, the question is, are we doing that? Or do we have certain kinds of people that we believe are outside of the reach of God's grace? Do you ever see that in your own heart? I think we're all tempted to do that. Even, even those of us that strongly believe in a God of grace and forgiveness we still tend to think, yeah, but I don't know about that guy, right? Or what about those kinds of people? Repeatedly, the Scripture says, no, all kinds of people. God is inviting all kinds of people to Himself. This would be something that we would want to look inward and pray about and say, God, are there people I've given up on? And I need to pray that You would reach them because You can reach anybody. Who are those people in your life? Second thing I want you to think about is maybe you're struggling with that in your own heart. Maybe you're struggling with, am I the wrong kind of person? Have you ever thought about that? Do you resist God's grace? Do you think, no, I'm outside of the reach of God's grace because I'm the wrong kind of person? I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks or I've done things that God can't forgive or things have been done to me that cover me with a shame that can never be fixed. And God's grace says, no, it's powerful enough to save you great promise from Zephaniah 3.17, an Old Testament prophecy that I love, shows how God rejoices in you and in me. Again, not because we're the right kind of person, but because of his love. Zephaniah 3.17 says it this way, the Lord your God is with you. He's a mighty one who saves. He will take great delight in you. 
He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with loud singing. Do you believe that? Often when we don't call all kinds of people to find joy in God, it's because we don't fully believe and fully realize the joy that God has in us. We don't recognize how he rejoices over us with loud singing. That promise of Zephaniah 3 was spoken to the people of Israel when they were in exile and when they were under the condemnation of God. That's the mystery of the gospel. The gospel says our sin, yeah, it's a problem. But you know what? God loves us so much, He took care of the sin. He doesn't say the sin's no big deal and sweep it under the rug. No, He loves us so much, He rejoices over us anyway, and He took the sin upon Himself on the cross. And He gives us His resurrection life by faith in who He is. Joy is for all kinds of people. The second thing we see is that joy is a fight. Joy is a fight. It can be a fight because you are depressed. It can also become a fight because of external evil and opposition, right? So there are internal reasons that make joy a fight for us, our own depression, maybe our own anger, abuse, difficulty we've gone through in life. But there's also this external evil out there, and that's more of what we see in this text. We see the evil of King Herod scheming against his people. And so we pick this up in verse 3, going back again. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Why was he troubled? Well, again, it's obvious to the first century folks, everybody knew Herod was a terrible person. So the first audience hearing this was like, oh yeah, we all know the reputation of Herod. He was evil and he saw this as a competition for the throne. And it also says that all Jerusalem was troubled with him. It makes sense that all Jerusalem would be troubled if they had an evil dictator that was upset. They'd be worried about that, right? But there's also a pattern throughout Matthew where it seems to show Um, Jerusalem and the people of God, even of not being fully accepting of Jesus. You see this played out throughout the book of Matthew. You also see it in the gospel of John. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him, right? So we see this human pattern of evil leaders and regular folks being upset at King Jesus wanting to be King Jesus. We want to be king. We want to push him off the throne and be our own kings. Joy is a fight, And we have evil leaders like we saw in the book of Daniel that become monsters and beasts as they use their power to try to make themselves gods. And regular folks like you and me, we do the same thing. Again, Adam and Eve played that sin out. We play it out every day. We say, no, I'd rather listen to the dragon and follow the dragon than love and serve God. And so we see this lived out in the life of King Herod. Verse 5, they told him, uh, this was the Jewish leaders he gathered, They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, it is written by the prophet, you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So he has to gather the teachers of the law to tell him where he's actually going to be born. Where is this king going to be born? Because he doesn't really know. He's an Idumean, and he's not familiar with the texts of God's word. So he has to call for some help. But really, he's calling for this help so he can get more information so that, as we'll see later on, in this chapter, so that he can try to kill any competitors for the throne. Verse 7, it says, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now again, first century uh, readers would have just known, oh yeah, he's lying because he's a terrible dude. We're not as clear about that, but as we read the rest of the story, moving on in verses 13, 14, 15, we see, oh yeah, he's evil and he 
wants to kill Jesus and anybody else that might be close to him. So this is the external opposition that pushes back against our joy, right? To just frame this big picture, theologically kind of go up to 50,000 feet. Uh, We want to rejoice in God and there's evil that pushes back on us. The Bible talks about three kinds of resistance, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, The world system, the world has these systems that are set up by sinful men. So there's just always sin worked through all of our systems, right? We work to reform our systems to make them right, but there's always brokenness in our systems. So that's going to push against us finding joy in Jesus. So joy is a fight with the world systems. There's also our own flesh, our own flesh. We're sinful. We have a sin nature. We, we lean away from God instead of leaning towards him. So that's going to make it a fight for us to rejoice in Jesus. But there's also spiritual evil, uh, the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Here we see spiritual evil working through evil men. There's real opposition. And when you face real opposition from finding joy in Jesus because of our flesh, well, I'm just going to say this for myself. I'll make it confessional. When I face opposition to the proclamation of Jesus, to the mission of Jesus, my flesh wants to rear up and fight physically, right? I'm often like Peter. Remember when they came to arrest Jesus and Peter grabs his sword and he hacks at the guy and he chops the guy's ear off and Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not how we're going to do this, right? So Romans 13 says there's a place for soldiers. There's a place for police. There is the rightful use of the sword to prevent evil in government. That's a different sphere. The church doesn't use swords. Do you see that? Soldiers use swords. Uh, Police use swords. We call them guns now, right? Um, Soldiers, police use force, use weapons. The church doesn't use those weapons. We have a different kind of weapon, right? So let's look at the armor of God passage in Ephesians chapter 6. I'll kind of summarize, summarize it for you. You don't have to flip there. We looked at it in Daniel. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against spiritual powers. We have to get that straight in our mind. So Paul says in Ephesians 6, since we're not actually wrestling against flesh and blood, since we're actually wrestling against these spiritual powers, and we need to use spiritual weapons. So don't think that we're going to fight for joy by punching somebody, right? (laughs) That's not how it's going to work. We're going to fight for joy by getting on our knees, by praying, by seeking God. One of the authors that I love that writes on this topic a lot is John Piper. Some of you have probably heard of his ministry. He's really based a lot of his ministry around joy and around that tension of how it's both a command, but it's also a gift from God. And he's written a whole book on fighting for joy and when I don't feel joy and how we can kind of press in. But here's the big idea. Joy comes from God, not from us. And so we're going to fight for joy by seeking him in prayer. We're going to Fight for joy by looking at what he has to say to us in his word. Several weeks ago, we said, here's spiritual warfare. It's fasting, prayer, and Bible study. Not, you know, someone opposes me and I want to punch him. No, it's, it's I get on my knees and I pray. I spend more time in the scripture. I spend time fasting. Fasting really is, is kind of a subset of prayer. It's like focused prayer. Christians don't fast to impress God by we beat ourselves up or look how tough and holy I am, God. Christians fast to, to devote themselves, to write, set aside distractions. We fast from entertainment so we can pray more. We fast from food so we can concentrate and 
pray more and seek the Lord more. It's, it's not about earning our way into His love. It's about seeking Him. So are you recognizing the fight, number one? Do you see the fight that we're involved in? And are you putting on the armor of God? Or are you putting on your own armor? You're saying, you know what? I'm going to fight with money. I'm going to fight with my muscles. I'm going to fight with relationships. Or are you fighting with the armor of God? I found a picture of someone wearing armor. And these are kind of pictures that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6. This guy's got a shield and a spear and a sword. Um, He's got a breastplate. He's got a helmet. Um, Paul says, yeah, we put on that armor. Every morning we get up and fight the spiritual fight and we put on this armor. But Paul in Ephesians 6 is saying that armor, those are the weapons that God has given us. Our salvation, the good news of the hope we have in Jesus, the righteousness of Christ. We're, We're covered and protected by Christ standing in for us, by him being our advocate, not by how impressive we are, how much we've accomplished or how much we've done. Every morning you've got to, determined to strap on your gear and your gear is Jesus and trusting him and seeking him in prayer and looking at his word that's the gear that he's given us to strap on are you fighting for joy are you recognizing that there's real spiritual evil and saying I'm not going to do special dances and special rituals and use special tools I'm going to go to these boring spiritual tools of prayer Bible study, seeking Jesus. Here's one of my favorite verses about this fight. It's in Philippians 4, 4 through 7. It says to rejoice, and then it tells us how to, how to do it, how to carry it out. Philippians 4, 4 through 7 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So it's on the right topic, right? We're on the joy topic. Paul is saying, rejoice. I command you to have joy. And we want to respond, but but Paul, I had a bad week, right? (laughs) Life is hard. There's a pandemic, Paul. I'm not able to rejoice right now. Paul says, no, rejoice. And then he shows us the roadmap. He shows us how to get there, right? Rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your, this is my favorite way to translate this, gentleness. It's translated differently in every modern translation, but most commonly, this Greek word is gentleness. So he says, rejoice in the Lord. Let your gentleness be clear to everyone. Do you see how that comes together with what we were talking about, about the fight for joy. It's not rejoice in the Lord, go punch people so you can have more joy and have your will accomplished in the world. No, it's rejoice and be gentle and trust God instead of yourself. And he goes on and he clarifies it. Don't worry, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the fight for joy. And just to be clear, some of you worry a lot. Some of you are full of anxiousness. And this verse can be used by the powers of evil in the world for more condemnation in your life. What I want to help you understand is some Greek grammar here, okay? This is really important for you. If you're feeling these voices of condemnation, you're like, I have anxiety, I have worry, God's done with me, I'm out, right? That's what we want to do. What Paul's saying here is when you have the worry, when you have the anxiety, don't continue in it. That's, that's the Greek grammar. It's don't keep going in it. That's a continuous aspect of the present tense in Greek grammar. So we might read this the wrong way in English, but what I want you to understand, he's saying don't keep worrying. Don't stay in your worry. When the worry comes, say, God, I don't know what to do about this worry. When the anxiety comes, say, God, will you take this anxiety? 
That's the fight for joy. We call it prayer. We look to the truth of God's word and then we offer up our hearts to Jesus. God, I need you. Will you help me? I'm struggling. This anxiety is taking me over and we offer it back up to him. And in that process of fighting for joy, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. That's the fight for joy. The last thing we see is that joy is gift-giving. Joy is gift-giving. So here we have in verse 9, we have them offering the gifts that they have. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Seems very specific here. God is guiding them. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There's that joy focus again. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy because they'd found the king they were looking for. Verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, just a minor thing. You might see this floating around the internet. Uh, we think for a lot of reasons with dating and other issues that this was Jesus at like one or two. Part of it's just the word used specifically is, is more common like toddler word. So we have a, a slight problem. Those of you that like nativity scenes, we've got the shepherds from Luke chapter two, and then we've got the magi, the wise men from Matthew chapter two. And the best we can tell, there was actually a one to two year gap there, right? Um, and I just want to kind of deputize you and say, it's okay that's fine, right? Like if you want to have that painting or that nativity scene, it's totally fine, right? This, it, it's symbolic. We don't really know what the barn looked like anyway, right? So, so it's okay. But just so you know, factually, probably this happened later. Also, a lot of people believe, we're not sure about this, but this is where part of the gift-giving tradition came into Christmas because of the wise men giving the gifts. Again, we're not completely sure. It's a great symbol here. The wise men give these glorious kingly gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those were important oils and perfumes. They were really expensive, way more expensive than the essential oils we use today. This was a huge, valuable, really important thing. And so they were giving kingly gifts to this little baby, this little child. Steve Guest, our youth director, was talking to me about it this week. He's like, yeah, the the contrast is funny, you know, like here's this two-year-old, and you'd think he would want a ball or a block, and they're giving him these king gifts, you know, gold and fine oils and perfumes. But again, that's pointing to his role as the king who had come. We see this picture of them bowing down. It says they fell down and worshiped him. Literally, that's bowing down to him. They opened their treasures. They gave him these beautiful gifts, gold today like it was back then, the most precious metal, very expensive, frankincense and myrrh, also very expensive, Some commentators also point to the uh, picture that myrrh might additionally give of you being used to anoint bodies for burial. And so again, this is kind of one of those poetic hints that we have in the scripture. There's all this beautiful stuff we have in scripture that's just black and white, you know, like this is that, that's what it is. There are other things like this that are kind of poetic and they point us to a, a, a fuller picture. We see that a lot in Matthew 
because Matthew does two kinds of prophetic fulfillment in his book. A real common term that Matthew uses in the Gospel of Matthew is fulfill. Sometimes they're direct prophetic fulfillments, right? We saw that he's going to be born in Bethlehem, and it's like, yep, born in Bethlehem. And he changes the words a little bit when he quotes Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2 said Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and then Matthew changes the word and says Bethlehem of Judea. And that's not a change in meaning. That's a helping people focus kind of translation work that he's doing there. Um, Ephrathah was like the county or area, and Judah was more like the state. Judah was the tribe of what? It's the tribe of kings, right? The promised king was going to come through Judah. So what Matthew's doing there is helping us see, helping us focus like, oh yeah, he's a fulfillment of this promise that the king would come from Judah and specifically in Bethlehem. He does that repeatedly. He gives us these beautiful poetic patterns that will be fulfilled. So two kinds of ways to think about prophecy and the fulfillments of Jesus. Some are very clear predictions, this place, this time. Some are patterns. Does that make sense? Some are patterns. It's like an echo. You hear a song and then you hear another song and you're like, oh, that kind of, that's like the same beat. So when you look back at the Old Testament, we have specific predictions. This is going to happen in this way. And we also have this artistry that's fulfilled in Jesus, right? Every leader is kind of cool and kind of a sinful failure. And then Jesus is the perfect leader that fulfills every pattern we saw in every leader that went before. You see that? There are these beautiful patterns that are fulfilled in Jesus. Well, we see that same kind of pattern in them, giving these gifts to him. Gold, it's valuable, he's a king. Frankincense, it's valuable, he's a king. Myrrh, it's valuable, he's a king. But also this poetic hint that he's going to die for his people's sins. So verse 12, it says, they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, so they departed to their own country by another way. So they gave the gifts that they had. Again, I think this is a good tie-in with the gift-giving tradition we often have at Christmas. But the whole New Testament says that we are to take our gifts and give them away. We give them to other people to help them in the name of Jesus. And we give them directly to God in acts of worship. Joy is gift-giving. It's an expression of joy. Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. And so sometimes even when we're not feeling joyful, we can repentantly go through the steps of joy. And I want to recommend that to you. It's really important that we understand that God leads and he puts the joy in us by what he's done for us by his son, Jesus. And then we step out in faith because of that. But that doesn't mean that we just wait until it feels right, right? Sometimes we just got to obey and repent that our feelings aren't there. Sometimes we do the joyful thing. We do the gift-giving thing. We serve someone and we're like, I think this is what God wants me to do. I think he's told me this is actually where true joy is found. I'm not feeling it, but you know what? I trust Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He loves me. So even though in this circumstance it doesn't make sense, I'm still going to step out in faith and try to express the joy that he's given to me in Christ. Sometimes our feelings catch up later. I found a picture of a kid painting a picture Um, How many of you have ever had a small child give you a piece of art? Raise your hand, those of you that are in the... Okay. And now, you can put your hands down, just a survey. Two choices here. How many of you said, that's terrible, you need a lot more work? And how many of you said, oh, that's beautiful, honey? Which one? How many of you said, that's beautiful, honey? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you said, that's terrible, you need a lot of work? Just one of you is kind of mean. Okay. Um, Most of us, we say, 
That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for the gift you've given to me. That's what God says when you offer your gifts to him, right? We sometimes have this backwards. We think, man, the only way God will love me is if I give a good enough gift. Have you ever thought that? I've often thought that. When my life is a mess, I think, I know I'll clean up my life. If I get my life in order, then God will love me again. Then he'll bless me again. The gospel reverses that and says, your life's a mess. And God recognizes the mess and he comes to us in Jesus and he takes our sins upon himself and he gives us his free righteousness. And so we respond to that and we give away the gifts. Amen? Romans 12.1 frames it beautifully. It says, look back on God's mercy because of God's mercy. Look back on that because of that offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That's the gospel order. God leads, we respond. So because God has given you the ultimate gift of mercy, grace, forgiveness, Romans 12.1 says this. Remember, there's 11 chapters before that where all he does is talk about the cross of Jesus. He says, because of that mercy, then offer your bodies as living sacrifices. We want to flip it around the other way. We want to say, hey, you know what? I'll offer my body as a sacrifice and then God will have to love me. I'm going to hold God hostage. I'm going to force him to bless me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God has blessed us in Christ. And then we respond. We give the gifts that we have. The question is, what are the gifts that you have? In Romans 12, in context, he's talking about spiritual gifts, kind of what we would think of as maybe temperament or skills. Um, I'm pretty good at talking to people. I'm pretty good at, at teaching and and studying and stuff like that, right? And some of you are like, that sounds horrifying. I would never want to do that, right? Because we have different gifts. Um, Some of you are really good at organizing stuff and being orderly and and thinking orderly numerical thoughts. I'm terrible at that. Every time I preach a sermon, I reverse the order of, you know, multiple things that I say. I'm not good at putting things in order, right? But some of you are so good at that and you're needed. Your gifts are needed, right? We have different gifts that we're good at. So that's a lot of what the New Testament is talking about. You just happen to be good at this. Romans 12 says, because of the grace we have in Jesus, run in freedom and use your gifts. And there's a great, I want to point you to go study that some more. There's this great kind of unpacking where Paul is saying, don't think of yourself any more highly, right? Where does your gift come from? Where does the gift come from? If you're giving somebody a gift, it comes from God. A a band that I loved in the 90s was called Sixpence None the Richer. Sixpence, none the richer. That's a money amount, sixpence. It's a British money. They use the wrong kinds of money in Britain. And so it's called sixpence, none the richer. And it's a phrase from C.S. Lewis, a great British theologian. And the theologian, he was really more of an author and Christian thinker. C.S. Lewis was talking about how wonderful it is to receive a gift from a child and how if a father gives his child sixpence, we might say a quarter, well, we'd have to say $5, and he goes and he buys something for his daddy, the daddy's still going to love the gift, even though he's sixpence none the richer, even though he's $5 none the richer, right? Lewis's point is everything that we give to God or give to someone else is a gift that God gave to us. It's God's grace. Piper said it this way, every step that we have in our life, every step that we take to try to give back to God or give back to anyone else is actually indebting us even more to him because he gives us every breath, he gives us every gift, he gives us every second. And so we should rejoice in that. He gives gifts to us and we get to give them away. So again, because God gives gifts to us, we give gifts to other people. 
And so that gives us that, that beautiful, gracious balance of humility and boldness. I'm going to boldly share my gifts. This is a gift God gave me to share. I'm going to share it, but also with humility. Oh yeah, I know there are other people that are better than me, smarter than me, whatever, but God gave me this thing and I'm going to share it for the blessings of others. Do you see that in your own life? Let me backwards engineer that a little bit for you. If you're not sharing your gifts, that's either pride or this kind of fake pride we sometimes call humility. You're like, I'm terrible. I'm no good. There's nothing good about me. You know what that is? That's pride. That's pride masking itself in humility. So either you think you're awesome and don't need God, that's clear pride, obvious pride, or you think you're so terrible God can't use you. That's like lying pride. Sorry, guys, I don't mean to beat up on you too much. The solution is the gospel. God loves you. He wants to use you. He's going to work through you. He proved that by giving you Jesus. He's giving you gifts to use. Now let's back up a little more. He's given you presents to wrap. He's given you time to spend on people. He's given you skills to use. He's given you interests to use. He's given you money to use, right? He gives you resources. They look like all kinds of different things. And you say, this is what I have. I'm going to use them to honor Jesus. Help other people lift up the name of Christ. Joy is gift giving. And Ephesians 2 clarifies it's not because of what we've done. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, everything that we do, the good works we live out are a result of the grace that God has given us. We trust him by faith and then we walk out in these good works. We do these good works in response to the good work he first did for us. So we'll wrap up here with the big idea of joy. Joy. Joy is something we often miss personally in our own lives and the way we find it is in Jesus, in who he is. Next week, we'll get into more of the scary story of Herod trying to kill the children, trying to kill Jesus, trying to destroy this joy. And there's this interesting little note from next week's text in Matthew 2.15. We haven't read this verse yet today, but it gets back to Matthew's patterns of prediction, pattern, the different prophetic fulfillments that Matthew points out to us. Matthew 2.15 says this, They remained there in Egypt until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So Matthew is telling us that Jesus going and hiding in Egypt and then coming out when Herod was dead and it was safe, coming back to Nazareth, that that was to fulfill this prophecy of Hosea that says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Again, this is a pattern, not a crystal clear prediction. This is a pattern where in Hosea, God is saying, out of Egypt, I called my son, and man, my son has been really disobedient. (laughs) My child Israel, who I rescued from Egypt, has caused me all kinds of grief and has struggled to obey me. And Matthew says, in a similar way, Jesus is called out of Egypt, and Jesus is God's son. What's the difference in that pattern? In both places, God's son is being called out of Egypt. The difference is Israel was a failure. You and I, humanity was a failure. Jesus was a success. And just in case we might miss it, Matthew in the next chapter clarifies it. Jesus is baptized. Matthew 3.17, God declares this. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Our only hope 
is we would grab hold of Jesus because he's the one that God is pleased with. The New Testament fleshes this out and says that if we cling to Jesus by faith, God is also pleased with you and me. God rejoices in his true son, Jesus. And when we cling to Jesus by faith, we are hidden in him so that the prophecy of Zephaniah 3.17 comes true in our lives as well. God is a mighty one to save us. He is in our midst. He rejoices over us with loud singing. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the joy that you have in us because of your work through Jesus. We look to Jesus and we see the root and the source and the foundation of true joy. Thank you, Father. And will you, will you work that out in our life? God, we, just, we confess. We struggle with this. We, we struggle with living it out. We, we bounce between fake joy and depression and not knowing how to live day to day. God, will you renew our hearts? Will you deepen these truths that you love us, that you're with us, that you're among us? Help us to see that through the life death, and resurrection of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.